We are in Revelation chapter 20 this morning. This is our, our 40th teaching, study, and going through the book of Revelation. But you know, I found that finding a book that is really um, kind of comprehensive about Revelation is difficult. It's more difficult to find a church that will take a congregation through the book of Revelation. That's very, very rare indeed. And yet there are so many questions about it and about the last time, the last things, the last judgment. What will it be like? What will judgment be like? There's still many Christians who suffer under the idea that there's one final judgment where every single person saved and unsaved stands before God at one time, when in effect we find in the book of Revelation that the judgments are separated by a thousand years. The righteous are redeemed and resurrected, the thousand-year millennium comes, and then comes the resurrection of the unjust. Today we're going to look at a few verses in Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, and then 11 through 15 about the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand that we might know what is up ahead, that we might live accordingly and warn people and encourage others. In Jesus' name, amen. We come really to one of the great questions in life, and it's a question about death. What happens after death? Where do we go? Do we cease to exist? Are we conscious? Is there a real heaven? Is there a real hell? Or is death simply a warm tunnel and a bright light for everybody saved and unsaved? What will happen? Time magazine uh, had an interesting um, cover story recently. Uh, it was called, Does Heaven Exist? I mentioned it to you a couple weeks ago. They asked people this question. Do you believe in the existence of heaven where people live forever after they die? The answer they got back, 81% said yes, and only 13% said no. Then they asked this question, do you believe in hell, where people are punished forever after they die? 63% said yes, and 30% said no. So, all in all, there seems to be an underlying belief in life after death, heaven and hell. At the same time, there's a hunger to know more about it. When Rutgers University in New Jersey decided to start its class that they called Death and the Afterlife, they had to limit the enrollment to 100 people when over 400 people signed up almost immediately. There's a growing interest. Even Hollywood is getting into the act with its series Touched by an Angel that is explicitly uh, religious in nature and uh, its spin-off show called Promised Land. Questions of the afterlife are showing up in shows such as The X-Files and Chicago Hope, questioning about spirituality, about beliefs, about heaven and hell. Even feature films are brushing up with eternity, especially the bad side of it. For instance, Jason Goes to Hell. How's that for a movie title? I want to go see Jason Goes to Hell. It's called The Final Friday. It grossed $15.3 million in ticket sales. The computer industry has a CD-ROM out, a game called Hell, a cyberpunk thriller. 
It's a PC game. It's for your computer. And it suggests a relationship between hell and Washington, D.C. <laughs> I didn't make that up. For the most part, hell among most Americans is simply a laughing matter. It's just an expletive in a sentence. It's not even thought about much except just as a fill word. John Brown wrote this. It's very upfront, but I think you'll get the idea. He said, quote, It's not unlikely that within the last 24 hours you've heard someone say, What the hell are you doing? Or, I sure as hell will. Or, Who in the hell do you think you are? That word hell has become a conversational byword in our day. Good friends even dare to say playfully to one another, Go to hell. They surely don't mean go to the place of punishment for the wicked after death, though that is how the dictionary defines the word hell. But why use the word hell? Why not instead say, What the jail are you doing? Or, I sure as school will. And why not say, Go to Chicago? If hell is really the place for eternal punishment of the wicked after death, how come it is used so lightly millions and millions of times each day? Why is there an apparent lack of seriousness about this word? Why is a word so heavy with meaning used so indifferently? Why do people pretend the place doesn't even exist? Here's our approach to these verses today, and this is the reason I didn't even put an outline in your bulletin because this outline is so easy, you don't need to even write it down. Here's the outline. We all live, we all die, we'll all be resurrected. Simple enough. We can all remember that outline. That's the approach we're going to take. The word live, life, the word dying, death, second death, the word resurrection, all of these words are used in these verses. We all live, we all die, we'll all be resurrected. Let's look at these verses together. Beginning in verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again till the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and Christ and reign with him a thousand years. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We all live, we all die, we'll all be resurrected, but not everybody lives the same way. Not everybody dies the same way, and not everyone will be resurrected in the same way or capacity. Let's think of that first one then, we all live. I know that sounds obvious, so obvious you think you don't even need to make a point of this, but we do. Because though we all live, 
not everyone who has life lives the same way. You see, the Bible speaks about life three entirely different ways. There's three words that the Bible uses for life. The first word is bios or bios. We get the term biology from it or biosphere from it. It means physical life. It means the material world that is around us, standard of living, possessions. It focuses on the externals. And the New Testament rarely uses this word when it mentions life. It's used, but rarely, and almost always negatively. For instance, Jesus said, there was the seed that fell among thorns. It was choked up by the pleasures of this life, the biological life, choked up the spiritual life. Then John used it when he said, the cares of this life, or the, excuse me, the pride of life. All that is of the world is not of the Father, and he mentioned the pride of life. Now this is where most people spend almost all of their thinking and energy. Though in terms of the New Testament, it's not as important as other forms of life. This is where most of us spend all of our thinking and energy is on biological, physical life. In one poll, people were asked, if you could change one thing about yourself and about your life, what would it be? Almost universally, people spoke about their appearance. They didn't say their personality, their character as much as their appearance. They mentioned they'd like to change their weight, their body type, their hair, their face, and their age. And the book concluded, after writing this poll, basically Americans want to be thinner and live longer. That's where almost all of the focus of people is, biological life. But the Bible uses another word. It's the word suke. It means your conscious life, your inner person, your personality. Jesus said whoever wants to save his life, suke, must surrender it, must lose it. Then there's a third usage, and this is probably the most prominent. It's the word zoe which is really a theological term. It shifts the focus from earth to heaven. It's life in the eternal sense. Down in verse 12, it mentions life in this term, the book of life. The books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, Zoe. It is often used with the word eternal or everlasting. Everlasting life, eternal life. Ionios zoe, it means age-abiding life. And it doesn't just mean forever and ever and ever unending. It means a quality of life that begins now. It's not, I hope I have eternal life after I die. If you're a believer, you have it now. It's a quality of life. It's a quality of existence that will continue for all of eternity. That's why Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. It begins now. It just lasts forever. How do we get this kind of life? Everybody has biological life. Everybody has that mental conscious life. What about the life that is eternal life? You get that by a new birth. Just like you were born once physically to get biological life, Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. It comes by the new birth, being born spiritually from above. Also, I want you to look down at verse 5, because this word is used of unbelievers as well, interestingly enough. 
It says, but the rest of the dead did not live again. It's the same root word, zoe. Did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Who are the rest of the dead? Well, we know that the saints of the New Testament have been resurrected. We saw last week the Old Testament saints have been resurrected. And the uh, tribulation saints have been resurrected. They're already in their new bodies. So this has to be the rest of the dead, the unbelieving dead, who will be raised, as we see, at the end of the thousand years. When they're finished, they're raised in resurrected bodies and they are judged. Here's the point. When we talk about eternal life, we mean it as a, a Christian biblical concept. We're talking about the spiritual life that we have in Christ. At the same time, we realize every single person has eternal life. Not the same kind. The question is not, do I have eternal life? The question is, where will I spend my eternal life? Everybody will live forever. The human soul goes on and on and on. There's two things that live forever, the Word of God and the soul of man. It will never cease. It will never end. There will always be a consciousness. Somebody said, if your best days are behind you, then you're lost. If your best days are ahead of you, then you're saved. What that means is, if, if your whole life is simply what I'm doing now, and I look back and go, oh, I remember the days, oh, that's what I'm living for is the past memories, and that's it. If you've got nothing to look forward to in terms of the kingdom and glory, good chance that you're lost. But if the best is ahead, it's a good chance that you are not lost but saved. So we all live, but we also live differently. Some have spiritual life because they're born again. Some just have biological life. That's all they live for. Second point to be made is we all die. And, and again, I, I, I know this sounds elementary, but you'd be surprised how many people forget that. They go through life thinking they'll, they're immortal until a funeral of their friend or family member, and it's all of a sudden it's like, Oh, yeah, this is part of it. People live and die. I remember watching a television program called Eternal Life. Eternal Life was the name of it, The Battle Against Aging. It was basically about people who don't want to face up to the fact that there is such a thing as aging and death. It was everything from uh, plastic surgery to liposuction to cryonics, freezing your brain or your body until they can figure out a way to thaw it out successfully. There were even three people who were interviewed on the show who swore that they were immortal, that they would never die physically. They would just go on living. They actually believed that in this present state they were immortal. Death seems so unreal, especially to us who are Americans, because we watch people die all the time in movies or on television. Oh, yeah, he died. Oh, yeah, he died. Well, five people died in that show. Or people who have really died live on on the silver screen. We can still see John Wayne and Marilyn Monroe. Though they're long gone, they're still living in their films. Or people's music, they've died. Roy Orbison, John Lennon, Jim Morrison, and others. Their music lives on. But death is real. It is a part of life. One person said, and we've told you before, that the statistics of death are pretty remarkable. Every one out of one dies. That's been the going rate for some time. Death is mentioned 394 times in the Bible. 
simply because it's a fact. One of the most famous scriptures of all is in Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. Hebrews underscores that whole issue with a little more seriousness when it says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment. So from the beginning of the Bible to the end, the death knell sounds. It's part of life. That is one appointment all of you will keep. Your appointment with death, whenever that is. However, here's the dividing line. Most people like living think only about physical death, just like they think about physical life. That's it. Physical life, physical death, death ends it all. But everyone doesn't die the same. It's mentioned a couple of times here, the second death. In verse 6, and uh, also verse, the end of chapter 20, verse uh, 14, and then also look at chapter 21 for just a moment, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So there is death physically, but there's also something called a second death, something worse than physically dying. Death simply means separation. When you die physically, your soul or spirit is separated from your body, but there's a further separation called the second death. That's the separation from the presence of God forever. It's a lot worse. You've heard the old saying, there's two things in life that are inevitable. What are they? Death and taxes. One person commenting on this said, death and taxes may be inevitable, but death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. <laughs> taxes do. But death can get worse. If you stand before God and you are unprepared, it can get a lot worse. Back in the garden when man fell, before that God said, now, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And that death was not just you're going to kick the bucket and decay in the earth, but they brought death and corruption upon the human race. And ever since that, people have died physically, but many have died spiritually as well. So it's not just a simple passing away, as we like to call it. Oh, he passed away. You pass on to something else. You pass through to something else. That's the reason why we ought to make choices while we live physically and we think about spiritual matters and the idea of death ahead of us, which is inevitable, and about the possibility of a second death. The great British historian and philosopher Arnold Toynbee said, man alone has foreknowledge of his coming death. And possessing this foreknowledge, he has a chance, if he chooses to take it, of pondering over the strangeness of his destiny. He has at least a possibility of coping with it since he is endowed with the capacity to think about it in advance, to face it, to deal with it in some way that is worthy of human dignity. So we all live, but then there's another kind of life, spiritual life. We all die, but there's a second death that's mentioned here. And thirdly, more to our point, we'll all be resurrected. The first resurrection we see is in verses 4 through 6. We read that last week, but we sort of skipped over this part. 
That happens before the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. After the thousand years, Satan is released. There's a rebellion. Jesus ends it all. And after that thousand years is another resurrection. It's the resurrection of all the lost, all the unsaved, all the ungodly from the fall of man onward. And that is mentioned in verse 11 through 14. Now, I've got to say that there's a lot of religions that promise their followers a resurrection. A lot of Christians don't know that. They don't have a leader who rose from the dead, but many religions will promise a resurrection of sorts. Here's the big difference. It's always a spiritual resurrection, never a physical. They'll promise that the body will decay, but the inner person, the higher self, or whatever they call it, will live on, but the body decays never to live again. That's the difference. Jesus said, however, this, The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Did you know that the word resurrection is used about 40 times in the New Testament? It's the word anastasis. And it invariably means a rising of a corpse from the grave. Not a spiritual metaphor of renewal, something literal. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, it wasn't come forth in a sense. He got up. A physical, literal rising from the dead. And so when they bury us in the ground, we'll be back. <laughs> the question is when? And the question is where? Will it be before that thousand-year reign? Or will rule and reign with Christ in glorified bodies for a thousand years? Or will it be at the end of that thousand years when the books are opened and those who stand there will be consigned to judgment? I've been at funerals of, of people who, frankly, have no interest in spiritual things. They don't care about God at all. You could see it in the way they lived. And yet, at the funeral, all of a sudden people get spiritual at funerals. They go, uh-oh, death. Better get spiritual. And so the minister will even get up and eulogize this person, saying, he's gone to his eternal reward. And I wince when I hear that. I think, and what reward did he go to? It may be very, very different from what the minister had in mind. When a person dies, any person, saved, unsaved, the soul leaves the body. The body is left to decay. But the soul, the real you, continues in a conscious state. If you're a believer, you're with the Lord. If you're an unbeliever, you're separated from him. And we'll see that in just a minute. It all depends on what that person did when they were faced with the gospel of Jesus Christ as the provision for their sin. If the person said, yes, I will receive Christ, or no, I will not, is the determining factor of heaven and hell. Now, in the Old Testament, the word for hell is often the Hebrew word sheol, sheol. In the New Testament, it is Hades. Two different words usually describe the same thing. It is the abode of the dead. And a lot of people think that Hades is where all the bad people go. In effect, Hades in the New Testament, Sheol in the Old Testament, is the place of all departed spirits, good or bad. Before the resurrection, that place was divided into two areas, two arenas, two compartments. One was called Paradise, or Abraham's bosom, Luke 16. The other was called 
just generically Hades or torments. Remember the story Jesus gave? It wasn't a parable, by the way. It was a story about a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. And the rich man fared sumptuously and didn't think about God or anything else. And he died. And the poor man, Lazarus, also died. And Jesus said the rich man went to Hades and was tormented. He was in torments. Lazarus, the poor guy who begged at the table every day, he went to Abraham's bosom where he was being comforted. And it says, being in torment in Hades, the rich man cried out, Father Abraham, you know, get me out of here and send somebody to talk to my brothers. You've heard the story. You know the story. He said, there's a great gulf fixed. So I can't go over there and nobody can go over there to where you're at and nobody over there where you're at can come over here. It was a place where there was a fixed gulf. There was no escape. There was consciousness. There was torment. There was recognition. There was communication. And that was the place called Hades. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, he took with him all of the souls that were in paradise and took them with him to heaven in the presence of God. So now when a believer dies, though the body decays, the person is immediately in the presence of God. You don't just die and fall asleep in your soul for a thousand or two thousand or whatever, how many years. You're immediately in the presence of God. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from my body is to be present with the Lord. As soon as this body dies and there's a separation of the soul and the spirit, I will immediately be with the Lord. So right now, we're waiting. We're waiting for the first resurrection, you might say, our part, the rapture of the church when we are conformed instantly, translated, the dead in Christ rise first, we're translated, then the Old Testament saints, Daniel 12:2, and the tribulation saints, the first part of Revelation 20, receive their resurrected bodies at the end of the tribulation period, right before the millennium. But as the kingdom starts, all of the Old New Testament saints, all of the tribulation saints are in glorified bodies. However, for the unbeliever, that's not so. The unbeliever is kept in torments, that side of Hades, until after the millennium, beginning in verse 11, comes that resurrection, which is a resurrection to judgment. Now, let's talk briefly just about what we read in verses 5 and 6. The rest of the dead did not live again. We'll get to that in verse 11. This is the first resurrection. That is speaking about what we read last week in verses 4, about being raised up to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. If you were to die today, God forbid, but if you were to die, and you know, maybe not God forbid, maybe you know, God has his time, you have an appointment, but whenever you die, your body will immediately begin to decay. But you will be in the presence of God, and your body goes into the grave awaiting the resurrection. Jesus told the two women, Mary and Martha, the grieving sisters of Lazarus, your brother shall rise again. She said, I know he'll rise again, the resurrection, the last day. Three times in John 6, Jesus said, 
Whoever believes in the Son of Man has everlasting life, and I will raise him up on that last day. What does that mean? What will that be like? What will we look like? Well, Paul said in Philippians 3, he will transform, and listen how he describes our flesh, our bodies, our lowly bodies. He'll transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious bodies. That's the reason, folks, that when a Christian dies, in the Bible it's called sleep. And Christian death is called those who sleep in Christ. It's not like, well, you die and you just go into unconscious state until he comes. No. The reason it's called sleep is because as sleep is followed by an awakening, death is followed by a resurrection. It's temporary. You're going to get up again. You'll be back again. You know, taking a nap is no like, oh, do I have to take a nap? Of course, when you're a kid, taking a nap is seen like a punishment, isn't it? If I told my son who's 11, you have to take a nap, what did I do wrong? When you get older and you say you have to take a nap, it's, really? That'd be great. You have no more to fear of death than you do of taking a nap if you are a believer. You will wake up and it will be a resurrection, the first resurrection of righteousness. You'll be rewarded and you'll rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. I'm looking forward to the resurrection. I thought about it often. Now, this model, this body has been great, but think of the new one coming. And some of you, though you do try to fight the wrinkles and the age and the pains and, you know, go for it. But you, you know you'll lose that battle. You can postpone certain things, but it's a losing battle. Paul said that our, our body is like a tent. It's a great metaphor. Our body is a tent. And we're going to cash it in one day for a permanent dwelling place. That's the difference, the tent and the permanent dwelling place. Camping is cool, but it gets old. And after a while, if you're in a tent for a long time, you'll start groaning a little bit, complaining, I don't want to get out of here. I want to have a home again. That's why Paul said we groan in our bodies. My father, the older he got, I, I would go home and visit him, especially in his latter years. I remember I could hear him get up. He'd groan, oh. When he'd go to sit in his chair out in the dining room, oh, he'd groan again. And get up, he'd groan. The other day I was picking up a piece of paper off the floor. <laughs> and guess what? I caught myself doing it. And then I thought, it's okay, it's scriptural. We groan. Someone asked an old Christian man, how old are you? He said, I'm on the right side of 70. Thinking he meant under 70, they found out he was 75. <laughs> what do you mean? You said you were on the right side of 70. He said, the side closest to heaven is the right side because of what's ahead. Well, what will it be like? What will our bodies be like in the resurrection? Turn briefly, quickly, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is a question that has been asked even from the early church. 
verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? With what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. In other words, the resurrection, our bodies will be so different that though a seed is connected to the flower that produces it, you know, there's really no comparison, right? The, one, the seed that goes into the ground, though connected, though related, will look nothing like what is going to come out of the ground. It's going to be an amazing transformation. Verse 38, God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So there'll be some changes that are radical, but it continues as the same life form. A wheat seed doesn't become barley. Flax doesn't become corn. It's still related, but it looks very, very different. So our resurrected bodies will have some kind of continuity with these bodies, but be radically different in appearance. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men and another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, in other words, of heavenly realms and of the earth. The glory of the celestial is one. The glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. One star differs from another star in glory. In other words, there's a difference between a mountain and a star, a rock and a comet. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Our resurrection bodies will be so radically different from these physical bodies we have now, just as an earthly body and a heavenly body are different, a rock and a comet. What are those differences? Let me give you four in these verses. There will be a difference in durability. Now, I can't give you a picture of what you're going to look like, but I'll tell you what the Scripture says. There will be a difference in durability. Verse 42, we're sown in corruption or decay. We are raised in incorruption. As soon as a baby is born, he's on the march toward death. And even the healthiest body deteriorates before death. And once you die, you'll deteriorate very rapidly after death. Remember when Jesus came to Lazarus' tomb and said, roll away the stone? You know, Martha figured this out. She said, Lord, he's been in there four days and by now he stinketh. That's the King James. Only four days, and his body was so decayed, even elaborate Egyptian mummification cannot stop the decay process. So, difference in durability. Second, there'll be a difference in potential. It says right after that, we're sown in dishonor, we're raised in glory. Let me give you a better translation. Our bodies now disappoint us, but they will be raised in glory. Ever since the fall, the body and the mind have been reduced in the capacity of doing the will of God. That will be over. So a difference in durability, potential. Three, there'll be a difference in power. Notice, we're sown in weakness, we're raised in power. Right now, bones still break. Right now, diseases can still be caught. Right now, even germs of a common cold can stop an adult dead in their tracks but not then. There'll be a difference in form. 
It says, we are sown a natural body, but we are raised a spiritual body. We have a natural body right now, and it works good on earth within certain parameters, certain temperature parameters and so forth. It's made for this environment. It's adapted for this environment. It's not made for a heavenly environment. The scripture says flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Remember when Moses said, God, I just want to see you. That's the only request I have. Just let me look at you. God said, Moses, if you do that in your flesh, you'll die. You need a whole different body and a whole different ability to do that. And in this flesh and blood, that's not possible. Verse 48, as was the man of the dust, so also are those who are made of the dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit in corruption. So we'll have a heavenly body instead of a spirit just inhabiting a body of flesh. It'll be a heavenly body somehow connected in relation to our previous body, but it's going to be different. Somebody said, well, how will we look? Better. Right? Just having a new body has got to be an improvement. Durable, potential, a raised, resurrected body. And I'm also asked the question, will we recognize each other in heaven? And Spurgeon answered that by saying, well, do you think we'll be dumber in heaven than we are here? I mean, if you can do it now, don't you think you'll be able to do it then in a glorified state? Finally, we'll close with this, the resurrection of the ungodly. We go back to Revelation 20. This is the resurrection after the millennium. The saints have already been raised. The New Testament, Old Testament, tribulation saints have already had their glorified bodies for a thousand years, reigning with Christ. And now comes a judgment, the white throne judgment, not that of the believer, but the unbeliever. Verse 11. And I saw a great white throne... And him who sat on it, it just sounds ominous from the start, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small, great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is the most serious, the most sobering setting, I think, in all of the Bible. The final judgment of unbelievers. The language, notice, is plain, straightforward. There's no embellishing. There's no gory details. You'd think that you could write a lot more gory details than this. It's not. It's just simple, straightforward, the facts. It is a courtroom scene, but it's, it's unlike. It's unlike any earthly court scene. For instance, there will be no debate about guilt or innocence. There will be a prosecutor. There will be no defender. At this courtroom scene, there will be a judge, but no jury. There will be a sentence without appeal. There will be a punishment without parole. There will be jail without escape. You say, are you sure this is all biblical? Well, we just read it, but listen to what Jesus said. He called it in John chapter 5, there will be a resurrection of condemnation or damnation. Daniel called it, the awakening to shame and everlasting contempt. You say, why do you say this is only non-believers and not believers? Because 
the first resurrection takes place before the millennium, we're already in glorified bodies, already ruling and reigning with Christ. And Jesus said this, He who believes in me is not judged, but he who does not believe in me is condemned or judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Also, Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but passes from death to life. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that ever since the beginning of history, Satan has deceived people into believing that this will never happen, that there will never be a judgment, that there will never be a final accounting, never a day of reckoning. The philosophies of men, this post-Christian era, all of the ideologies of men, including the theory of evolution, if we came from a mass of protoplasm and God didn't make us, there is no God, there is no judge, there's no judgment, which means you can live any way you like and just pass into oblivion. He's done a great job in deceiving people that there will never be a judgment, but there will be. He's even done it in churches. There's many so-called religious or spiritual people that believe in what I would term the Oprah Winfrey God. The benign grandfather who sits in the sky and is just, oh, sentimental, and everybody, come on in, no matter what. That is the idea that many people have concocted of God. Here it's very different, it's sobering, but it says the dead are there. Verse 12, they, the dead, small and great, standing before God. The somebody and the nobody, the rich and the famous, the poor and the obscure, all in a, in a terrible fellowship together, a final judgment. All unredeemed people. That's what this is. Unredeemed people standing before God apart from Jesus Christ. The kind of people who said, I don't need Jesus. I'm good enough. I'll stand in my own works, my own record. Really? Well, the books are open. Everything you've ever thought, said, or done. Perfect record. You'll be judged accordingly. You're either judged in Christ or you're judged apart from Christ with your own record. So they're standing, sort of like a court. Will the prisoner please rise and approach the bench? And now we understand what it means in Hebrews 10 when it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is a fearful sight. The books are opened. Probably the law, perhaps the book of works of people, the records, but also it says, notice, uh, the book of life is open. The implication is they're looking for names to see if they're in the book of life, and they're not. And everyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. In the ancient times, there was not only a record of wrongs in the courtrooms, there was another book of loyal citizens. And so the books are open. And imagine this scene. Jesus even talked about it. There's Jesus with his nail-scarred hands, looking through the books, trying to find the names. It's not that he doesn't know they're not there. This is that final demonstration of those who say, I'll stand in my own works. Jesus said, he will say to them, depart from me, you cursed. This is Jesus, the Savior, the loving one. He said, I will say to them, depart from me, you cursed ones, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. No doubt a person would tremble at that. And Jesus said, they will say to me in that day, now wait a minute, Lord. You know, we prophesied in your name. We've done wonderful deeds in your name. 
We've gone to church in your name. We've supported this work. And, and they'll go through their little litany. Jesus will say, but I never knew you. Depart. Oh, how those words must ring forever and ever in the ears of those conscious, resurrected, ungodly. I never knew you. I never knew you. I never knew you. Forever. Perhaps the reason that believers will not be present at this scene is that we wouldn't be able to hear, we wouldn't be able to bear hearing somebody we know turning to us and saying, why didn't you tell me about this judgment? Why didn't you tell me there was forgiveness for my sins in Christ? Why didn't you have the guts to let me know? But this is the judgment of the unbelieving, of the condemned. The great point to be made is simply we all live, we all die, we'll all be resurrected, but there's a big difference in how. We all have life, but not everybody's been born again to spiritual life. We all die, but you don't have to face the second death. We'll all be resurrected, but Jesus said some will be raised to life, some will be raised to condemnation. A simple axiom that I have remembered that helps me in this is, is this. If you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. You're, you're born, obviously, here you are. But if you're born twice, born again, John 3. You'll only die physically, die once, but never spiritually, never the second death. You'll be resurrected into life. So if you're born twice, you'll only die once. But if you're only born once, you are here, you are present, you have biological life, but you're never born again, you'll die twice. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. There will be a resurrection of everyone. The state, the consciousness will be eternal. And what's the hope of the Christian in all this? We read about it. A new body, a resurrected body. The hope of the Christian is expressed in the epitaph that is on Benjamin Franklin's grave in Philadelphia, he wrote it himself. The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out, stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work will not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. A new book, a new turning point. Always hope for the believer. Spread the hope to those who are hopeless, who don't know Christ. After the service, after we pray, we have a prayer room right over here. If you don't know Jesus Christ, come to him. Don't come to church. Don't come to skip. Don't come to religion. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He alone can save and forgive of sin. How horrible to remember that a sermon was preached that you were at, that you had the chance and you walked away from it. And to remember that forever would be a tragedy. Father, we thank you for not only physical life, but spiritual life. Thank you, Lord, that though there is a second death, that if we go through that first resurrection of life, we'll never have to face it. And Lord, help us to warn those who are on their way to that second resurrection of condemnation, of damnation, whose books are not written in the book of life. Lord, I pray that names this morning would be added to your book, the book of life, 
In Jesus' name, amen.